0: All right. Well, good morning, church. All right. Good morning to a couple of you at least. Hey, I'm going to start off with an apology. Um, I am not Dean. So uh, I know, I know you came here. You're excited. The worship was fantastic. The parking was excellent. And then you're so excited for Dean and here I am. Uh, So, my name is Paul Pretty. Uh, Dean is actually at our Delaware campus this morning. Uh, He is teaching there. Uh, Kale Booer, who's the teaching pastor at Delaware, he's on sabbatical, and so we've sort of got a rotation of guys uh, teaching there. But, uh, like I said, my name is Paul, and I'm the teaching pastor of our Marion campus. Uh, And before we get into any uh, text this morning, I first just want to begin by saying thank you. And the reason for that is we launched in Marion on Easter Sunday of 2022, And um, it has been really great and really hard simultaneously, really great, really hard. And I know that there have been so many here who have been so faithful in prayer, who have been so faithful to reach out to me and say, how can we help, who have been so faithful to give, to support. And so I just want to say, church, thank you. Because of your prayer, because of your support, because of your investment, the gospel has moved forward. And we get to faithfully, Lord willing, by the grace of God, proclaim the gospel each and every week in Marion, Ohio. A place, like all other places, that is in desperate need of the love of Christ. And so, I'm grateful for you and thank you. Uh, This morning, yeah, that's worthy of an applause. This morning, we are in uh, week two of a series we've, we've called Under the Sun. Um, you may have noticed the graphic there. Um, and so in this series, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and this whole series really reminds me of the time that I was almost killed by a filing cabinet. Um, let me explain. And so this was many years ago, ago before my brain, I think, was fully developed, so just a couple of years ago. Um, I, was, I was engaged at the time to my now wife, Maddie, and we needed to move a large filing cabinet. This thing was about six feet tall, two and a half, three feet in depth. And um, I, being the you know incredible physical specimen that I am, said, look, we don't need to unload it, just keep it full. I got this. And we had to move it down like a, a, a full flight of stairs, not like a couple of steps, like a full flight of stairs. And so I got the dolly as one does. And, um, you know, Maddie's there with me. And so we, we, you know, lift the filing cabinet a little bit. I get the uh, dolly underneath and I start walking backwards as one does. And I get to the steps. And I'm like, okay, here we go. And Maddie's like, whoa, 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 what, what are you doing? I'm, like, well, I'm going to take the filing cabinet down the steps. What does it look like I'm doing? She's like, but I, I don't think, I think you're supposed to turn around and, and take the dolly down that way I'm like look do I look like a common dummy I know what I'm doing so I got the filing cabinet I'm like look she's like look I really don't think this is how you use a dolly and I'm like please don't patronize me and so I get this dolly and I've got it I'm like I just got to see how it moves you know I just got to get past the first step and so I've got I mean this thing weighs a lot and so I've got it here and I'm like got one hand here one hand here and I get on the first step and I have realized I've made a horrible mistake even with my incredible strength, I was totally outmatched. And Maddie's like, what do you mean? You, I'm like, I can't, I, I'm stuck. She's like, what do you mean you're stuck? I'm like, I'm stuck. I got nothing. She's like, well, what do we do? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, well, push it back up. I like, I can't. And so I had this horrible realization that I'd made a horrible mistake and I'd ignored the advice of my then fiance, now wife, which she likes to remind me of. And so I had this decision to make. What was I going to do? I'm like, okay. I just let go. And I ran as fast (laughs) as I could down the entire flight of steps, you know. And this filing cabinet, once again, quite large, quite full of things, comes tumbling after me. It's heavy. And if had this thing hit me, I may not be standing here right now. No kidding. Maddie screams bloody murder. I scream bloody murder. And I get down the steps. And by the grace of God, this thing gets wedged smashes through both sides of the drywall, gets wedged in the middle of the steps. Saved. Now, the best part of the story is when I had to go to my future father-in-law and say, hey, look, there's a couple of dings in the drywall. You're going to want to look at those. Some, I don't know what happened. I mean, massive, huge holes. Now, the reason that that story reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes is because we have the wisest man to ever live, King Solomon, speaking from the voice of the preacher, saying, don't make the mistakes that I made. Don't live your life this way. And he's giving us this advice on how to use this life we've been given. And so often, tragically, what we say is, I've got it. And then we're crushed by the world because we've pursued it and we've lived it in an incorrect way way. And so in this book, what we have is the opportunity to see Solomon, again, the wisest man who ever lived, to say, look, I pursued this, I pursued that, here was the end outcome. He gives us the entire overview of this book in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3. He asks this major question, I know you covered it last week, but he asked, what does a man gain by all of the toil with which he toils under the sun? That phrase, under the sun, is a critical one for us to understand. It relates to things that are on the earth, things that are worldly, not heavenly. He says, what does a man gain or what does a person gain by working and working and working for what they can achieve in this world? And he gives us his ultimate answer. Actually, he'll give us an even more ultimate answer in chapter 12. We'll get to there when we get to there. But in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that word vanity has the meaning of meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. It's like if you went outside on a cold day, very unlike today, and you let out a breath of air, you would see that breath of air appear before you, and it might look solid, it might look as, you could, look as though you could grab hold of it, but if you tried to grab hold of it, you would grab nothing but air. And so what the preacher is saying, if you live your life for what you can achieve and what you can accomplish in this life, it will be like grabbing air. Your life will be meaningless. And that's really, really bad news if we stop there. But it's really good news. The big idea, the big point of this entire series is this, that God offers us a full life in an empty world. And as we go throughout this series, we we see how that is revealed to be true. That God offers us a full life in an empty world. And what we see then, really from the second half of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, is Solomon in the voice of the preacher saying, look, let me prove it to you. I told you from the start things were meaningless if you live for the world. But I'm going to make sure you understand what I mean. And so what he's going to do at the second half of chapter 1 is he's going to say, I pursued wisdom. I didn't do it. And it's almost as if on his mirror in the morning, he has this list or categories of things that he can pursue to try and see if that works. Here's an idea. Maybe this will work. And so now, as we get into chapter 2, we're going to see two things that he pursues. He's going to pursue pleasure in the form of enjoyment and employment. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, um, I need help this morning. So I'm going to pray for us before we engage in the word, and then we'll get into the text. Let's pray together. Father, I do need your help. We need your help. God, you promised that your word is living and active, and so we ask that you would make it living and active for us today, that we would be penetrated by the power of your word, we would be shaped, we would be conformed into your image. God, would you please get me out of the way in your glory above and beyond all? Would you help me teach and communicate clearly so that, Jesus, you are magnified and you are glorified? And, Father, I ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the text says this. I said in my heart, again, the preacher speaking, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Okay, so he tells us, much like in chapter 1, here's my plan, here's the outcome. This particular instance, he's going to pursue pleasure to its absolute nth degree. I think I learned that term in high school geometry. I'm probably using it incorrectly. But he's, he's applying it. He's, he's pursuing pleasure more than you can pursue, more than anybody else can pursue it. And he does it again in two different ways in enjoyment and employment. First, we see enjoyment. Verse two, he said, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So, look, I'm going I'm I'm to drink, I'm going to have a merry old time. Verse 8, he says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. The picture we get here, church, is of a very powerful, very wealthy man saying, I've got an idea. Again, I'm going to pursue it to the fullest. I can pay for whatever I want. I can command whatever I want. I can do anything I want. And he does just that. He goes above and beyond in his pursuit of pleasure. Elsewhere in the scriptures, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 4, all the way really through chapter 12 you see some of the details of how it is that Solomon pursued pleasure. What we see in chapter 11 is that Solomon had 700 wives. Hello. He had 300 concubines. I mean, that is excessive and disgusting. Like, come on, man. And it's a lot of anniversaries to remember. And so he he gets everything. He's like, man, maybe this will satisfy my soul. And so he goes crazy. We're also told elsewhere in 1 Kings, the supplies that it took to feed his household. There were so many people in Solomon's household, it took 30 oxen, 30 oxen, 100 sheep slaughtered each day to feed his household. That's a lot. It also took the equivalent of 30 55-gallon drums of fine flour. That's a whole lot of donuts. I mean, the dude just went crazy. Excessive, excessive, excessive. And what does he find? Well, it's vanity. And so some of us, I think, resonate with this We say, I I want to find satisfaction, I want to find joy, I want to find pleasure, I'm going to pursue it by going big in earthly possessions and earthly experiences and earthly exploits. Now, that's enjoyment. Again, some of us resonate with that. Now, what about employment? Some of us, myself included, will resonate more with this one. Verse 4, he says this, I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself, made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Again, the numbers here are just out of this world. I mean, at one point, I think he sacrifices 120,000 sheep the dedication of the temple, which just would have been a portion of his possessions. What we see here is that there's a lot of plural. I built houses. I had vineyards. Vineyards at this time were the status symbol. If you had a vineyard, you were a baller, okay? And this guy has many vineyards. He has to plant, like, create, I don't know, lakes in order to water these vineyards. I mean, I just excessive. And, and the, reason I, the reason I want to go through all of these details is because I think sometimes we could make the mistake to say, well, maybe he didn't go big enough. Maybe he didn't quite pursue enough. Maybe he didn't quite do it right. Maybe I can. And what I would say to you is that if you think that, you can't go bigger than Solomon. You can't have more power. You can't have more money. You can't have more women. You can't have more vineyards. Solomon has it all. Now, we come to his end conclusion. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. I want you to imagine how depressing and crushing that moment must have been. I imagine Solomon in his vast castle. He goes out onto his balcony, his household full with everything he could have purchased. His 153,600 employees working away in his vast empire. And he goes out on his balcony. I imagine he puts his hands on the railing. He's expecting to have some type of great joy, great satisfaction. And to his horror, what does he feel? I need more. There's still something missing in my soul. All of this stuff, all of these people that I've mistreated, many of those 153,600 slaves, all of these concubines, all of these wives, not Enough to fill his empty soul. That will crush you. And here's the thing. These are very important, very wise words for us. You know, what's amazing about the Bible, there are innumerable amazing things about the Bible, one of which is this was written over 3,000 years ago by a man who lived on the other side of the world in a vastly different culture, and he almost perfectly, or God perfectly, diagnoses our culture today. You see, there's a term referred to as worldview. Worldview is is pretty simply defined. Worldview is really the lens through which we interpret and exist within the world. Worldview very often has these different philosophies that combine to create a worldview, and oftentimes we don't even know we're living within a certain worldview. Dean mentioned one of those philosophies last week called humanism, and that very, very much fit within the context of chapter one. There's two worldviews I think that are vitally important for us to see today, because again, I think it's the dominant worldview of our time. One of these philosophies is something called existentialism. You have a definition on the screens for you that will say it in full, but essentially existentialism says the person, the individual, has the authority and the power to look out upon the world, to examine the world and say, this is the thing of greatest value, this is the thing of greatest importance. Existentialism says that no government, no God, no higher authority can tell you what carries the most value. And so the existentialist has the responsibility and the authority, quote-unquote, to say this is the thing that has the most meaning for me. Now, the other worldview, the other um, philosophical view that's combined here is something called hedonism. Hedonism is a philosophical view that says, hey, whatever gives you the most pleasure, that's the thing that you should pursue. The ultimate goal of humankind, according to humanism, is pleasure, whatever that means to you. And so what happens when you combine these two things, you get the slogan of our day. You do you, whatever that means to you. And here's why this is really important for us today. You see, worldview is a little bit like a TV. See, when you go and buy a TV, you order it on Amazon or whatever it is you get TVs these days, um, what happens is your TV comes with presets, doesn't it? You plug it in, you're like, sweet, I'm going to watch something. But then the aspect ratio is set to a certain thing. You're like, I don't really like that. And the color saturation has a certain preset setting. And the volume has a certain preset setting. All of these different presets come standard with your TV. Worldview is a little bit similar. You see, the thing about worldview is because we live in a broken world, and we do, because we are flawed by sin as we are, because the world is broken by sin as it is, what happens is we naturally often adopt unconsciously or, un- or consciously the dominant worldview of our day. And so what happens is we may not realize it, but we're walking around with the presets of the world in us. And what that means is we, we lay hold of existentialist ideas, and we lay hold of hedonistic ideas, we mash them together, and what happens? We say, you know what? You know what? My work has the greatest meaning in my life. I literally, before following Jesus, used to go by this phrase. that sounded really nice to me. I want to do meaningful work. And what happens is when we identify the thing of the greatest value to us, whether that is work, we say, you know what, my family has the greatest value to me. My house has the greatest value. My possessions have the greatest value. My bank account has the greatest value. What happens is we attach satisfaction, hedonism, to the thing of our greatest value. We say, you know what will make me happy is if I keep excelling in work. I will find the greatest pleasure if I keep advancing up the ladder. I will find the greatest pleasure if my kids do what I tell them to do and achieve certain things and go to certain schools. My home has the greatest value to me, so... I will therefore find the greatest pleasure in investing in my home and making sure my house looks a very specific way. So what happens is we end up living this way, we end up pursuing these things, and we end up buying into these worldly philosophies without even realizing it. And so now the word of God has the opportunity to penetrate our hearts and say, are you doing that? Am I doing that? And I want, to, I want to turn into a three-year-old here for a minute because I can't help myself. I don't know. I have a three- and a five-year-old, and they always do this. But why? And I'll say something like, hey, it's time for bed. Why? Because it is. to cool. Can I have fruit snacks? No. Can't have fruit snacks. Why? Anyway. So I want to ask this question. Why not? Why can't we find satisfaction for our souls in our enjoyment and in our employment? I think it's a fair question. I think we never need to be scared of asking honest questions to the Word of God. God's big enough. He can handle it. Okay? Ask those questions as you're studying, as you're reading. Why doesn't this work? Let me tell you. (laughs) There's many places that you could go. I'm going to stay within the context of this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says this. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Here's what that means. Your heart is created to find satisfaction in God. And if you try and find satisfaction and meaning in anywhere else or anything else other than God, you will find emptiness, meaningless disappointment. He has placed a longing and a desire for him. And what happens is we... We take faulty gods and we say, maybe this, and we shove it in our hearts and we say, no, it's not quite right. Maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. And and all the time our souls are saying, please, I need God. But we make the mistake of living for this world. And so that's the mechanics of this church. That's how this works. That's why this works. And I think there's so much here left for us to see that is vitally important. You see, church, we were made by God for God. And no one but God can really satisfy our souls. We were made by God, for God. Nothing but God can satisfy our soul. So much more to see here in this text from a very practical standpoint. I think it's always good to say practically, how does this change my day today? How does this change my day tomorrow? I think we see this. We will rob ourselves of pleasure if we pursue pleasure without boundaries. I think it's really, really clear in the text. We'll rob ourselves of pleasure if we pursue pleasure without boundaries. Now, depending on your church background and your church context, I think sometimes there's this idea out there that says, if you're following Jesus, that means you need to stay away from pleasure. There's this idea that says, if you're following Jesus, it's just a boring, ho-hum life. I think it's a false idea. And I'll give you some biblical evidence for that. Uh, Think about, just if you will, we're not going to go read the text. Read it later today. Always check me. Um, Go into Genesis chapter 1. I want you to look at Adam and Eve. Talk about pleasure. They are placed in the Garden of Eden with the very presence of God, the ultimate epitome of pleasure himself. They are surrounded by God's perfect creation before sin has broken it. Beauty, just pleasure upon pleasure. Think about this, very practically speaking, there's a man and a woman, and God's command to them is be fruitful and multiply. Somebody clapped for it. And so there's pleasure right there. It's all around them. Where does the issue come in? God gave a very clear command. He said, you can eat of any fruit in the tree, not that one. Oh, okay. This is pretty nice, but that looks pretty nice over there. What do they do? They wander over, they sneak on up to it. Satan's there tempting him, and Adam and eve they are both equally blamed here. A lot of times, Eve gets the blame. Adam was right there. Come on, bro. Like you were sitting right there, standing. I don't know. Eve takes the apple, takes a bite. Oh, it's delicious. Here you go. Oh, it is really good. There was pleasure, and yet, it was that out-of-bounds pleasure that then robbed them from all of the pleasure that God wanted them to have. What's the result? They're picked up and placed outside of the garden they're removed from the beauty perfect beauty of god's creation they're removed from the presence of god they're now in shame covering themselves from one another you see is when they went out of bounds of the pleasure they robbed themselves of all the pleasure that god had given them before and that principal church is so relevant for us today look at solomon he said, maybe just one more wife, one more concubine, one, one more, and it never got there. Church, in the context of your marriage, if you will stay within the boundaries that God has placed for your marriage, you will find your marriage to be far more satisfying and far more gratifying. If you keep your eyes fixed on the person that God has, has united you with, if you keep your, keep your heart focused on laying down your life for her or submitting to him, in the biblical context of relationships, you will find deeper joy, deeper satisfaction if you focus your heart and your attention, obviously through Jesus, on your spouse. If you're dissatisfied in your marriage right now, what boundaries are you outside of? I think the same is true in our workplace. So often, we're in our jobs, we're in our work, and we're looking around and saying, I want that job, I want that money, this isn't fair. And if we would just realize that every, any work that we have to do, Is a blessing from God. Work existed before sin entered the world. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth. There's work in there. If we would just focus on the work God has given us to do today, we'll actually find greater satisfaction. We'll actually want to diligently focus on the work God has given us to do. And what will happen is we'll crush it, and then we'll actually be noticed, and people will say, hey, maybe you would consider this job. The same is true for our possessions If we would see our possessions as blessings from God, every single one of them, we don't deserve anything. You know, we deserve is death. But by God's grace, he's given us life and he's given us all of these things to enjoy to point us to him. And so if we see all of these things, we have these things, it's like, no, God, help me have a satisfied heart in the things that you've, you've given me. Help me have a satisfied heart in the house you've given me, the car you've given me, the education that you've given me, the family that you've given me. Give me satisfaction because all of that is a blessing from you. All of it. See, boundaries do not limit pleasure. Following the boundaries that God has placed for us actually enhances and increases pleasure. There's a point on the screen I just miss said but you got the idea. Right? When we follow the boundaries of God, the things that God has put in place in our marriages, our relationship, our work, our money, when we follow the commands of God, we'll find ourselves being much more satisfied. Now, as I say all of that, I think some of us in the room this morning are feeling this, like, God, I, I wish I didn't have these desires. I want different desires, Paul. I want... I want to live differently. I'm ashamed about the the sin that I have in my life. I'm ashamed of the things that I think about. I'm ashamed about, about how I covet money. I'm ashamed of all of this. Paul, what do I do? I want to desire the right things. Here's what I would say to you. Our delight really defines our desires. We need to identify our delight because our delight really follows and and. Informs our desires. And I think we see it in the text here. If you go to verse 8, we already read it before, but verse 8 of chapter 2, it says this, Also, I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. See, this word delight carries with it this sort of higher authority. The thing that we delight in will then therefore fuel What we find pleasure in and our desires then follow what it is we delight in. And for Solomon, it would appear as though everything for him was focused on these women. The Bible actually tells us elsewhere that it was these women, these 700 wives and 300 concubines that actually led his heart away from God. Tragedy. And so the question is, what is it that we're delighting in? And how then are our desires following the very thing that we delight in? And again, I think for some of us, there's, some, there's some, some shame there. For some of us, we're saying, you know what? My work is my highest delight. I'm delighting in my work, so all I can think about is what's next for me in my job. Some of us are saying, I'm delighting the most in my family, so I'm consumed by my kids behaving a certain way and getting into certain schools. I delight in my house, so it has to look a certain way, and if it doesn't, I can't handle it. What is your delight? Now, while I say that, and there's like a piercing of our hearts, I want to encourage us because we don't have to stay there. God is so merciful. God loves repentant hearts. God is so faithful to change us. And so we need to change what our delight is. See, Psalm 37, verse 4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Here's what that means. A lot of times we want, to, we want to say, God, give me the desires of our heart, but we don't really want to delight in him. <laughs> we like to put this on coffee mugs and stuff, I don't know. We say, yeah, God, give me the desires of my heart, I like it. But are we delighting in God? And maybe for some of us, like, well, how? Once again, there's the four-year-old in me coming out and saying, how do I delight in God? Because If my delight fuels my desires and the things that I find pleasure in, I want to have different pleasure, different desires, and therefore a different delight. And so I I want to just plead with us. We need to delight in Jesus. And there's three ways in which we can do that. We need to delight in the person of Jesus. We need to delight in the power of Jesus. We need to delight in the presence of Jesus. So as we go and say, God, I want different delights, so I have different desires, so I find different pleasure First, the person of Jesus. I want to direct us to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, This is Jesus, guys. This is amazing. He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Who is God? Jesus. (laughs) So good. Um, And he uh, upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Who is the person of Jesus? The one through whom... The universe is being upheld. The power of his word. Jesus is the one who was perfect. The one who chose to take off glory and to live in humility. The one who chose to walk in the dirt like us. The one who chose to experience the sinful world like we experience the sinful world. And yet the one who remained faultless and blameless in the midst of the sinful world. His power is immense. His power is stunning. His person Is beautiful. You see, Jesus was so perfect, so beautiful, that he is the only one who could be hung on the very tree that he spoke into existence. His person is so perfect, his person is so blemishless, that only Jesus could satisfy the wrath of God against sin. Only Jesus could be the one who would be the faultless Lamb of God who could take upon the wrath of God against sin on our behalf. He is wonderful. And you have that wonderful, majestic, powerful God as the person of Jesus. What about the power of Jesus? Everything that I just said, he is all of those things, and he is the only one who has the power to save us. One way to the Father. One way to God through Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because only Jesus is the blemishless, faultless Lamb of God. Only Jesus is the one who takes the sins of the world away through repentance and faith in him. And so as we think about, God, how do I delight in you? When's the last time you you stopped and thought about what Jesus saved you from? When's the last time you stopped and thought about the person you would be today if Jesus hadn't rescued you on that day? I know for me, sometimes I'm stunned by the fact that Jesus saved me. So much, I have so much shame often about my ten-year addiction with pornography. I'm like, God, why? My desires are so far from You. You're so perfect. You're so holy. You're so wonderful. Why would You save? Like, God. (laughs) He says, No, I see You in Your mess. I see You in Your brokenness. I see You in Your filth, and yet I still love You. I still desire You. I came down to save You. I want to bring you from death to life. I want to, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, make you into a new creation in me. I want to transform you. And that is stunning. As we delight in God, we need to think about the presence of God. You see what's wonderful, so many wonderful things about Jesus, but the fact that he didn't just come and, and walk and live like us and then die for us. He continues to be present with us. In Matthew 28, we just spent a decent amount of time looking at Matthew 28 in our Wide Open World series. What did we see? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what? I will be with you to the very end of the age. He doesn't abandon us. Instead, he sends his spirit to dwell within us. The presence of Jesus. So, are we practicing the presence of Jesus? Here's, here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we think in the Christian life, what it means is, oh, I said a prayer one day. Praise God. You are justified in a moment. You need to be sanctified in a lifetime. Here's what that means. In a moment, you went from enemy of God to co heir with Christ through repentance and through faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus means faith in what? What, what, what about Jesus? Faith in Jesus meaning he paid for your sins. That's what faith in Jesus means, that he was able to take the wrath of God for your sins. And so then, on a day-to-day basis, yes, we are justified, we are viewed as righteous, we are viewed as holy before God, and yet we're still sinners. And so practicing the presence of God is saying, God, make me more, and like, more like you every day. Right? Saying, God, i got this sin issue. Repentance is a beautiful thing. I think we practice the presence of Jesus by practicing often repentance to Jesus. Even as believers in Christ, we continually and constantly need to be fleeing from the things that we once clung so closely to. We need to be asking Jesus, make me new, make me clean, renew my mind, free me from these desires, free me from these things that I I don't want, but yet cling so closely to me. By the power of your spirit, God, would you make me a new person? Jesus wants to say yes. There's two categories of people in the room this morning. There are those we've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Praise God, I'm so thankful for that. I want to encourage you. Where is your delight? (laughs) Therefore, where is your greatest source of pleasure? And therefore, where do your desires lead you? I want you to delight in Jesus. Jesus. I want you to delight in the fact that when you repent to him, he doesn't shun you or shame you. He says, come here, all of you who are weak and weary and heavy laden with burden, I will give you rest. That's one category of us. I want to be made more and more like Jesus every single day. The second category of us, we don't know what in the world I'm talking about, but you're like, that sounds pretty good. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus personally, I want to provide you an opportunity to know Jesus personally this morning. Knowing Jesus personally is saying, Jesus, I need you to save me. And he will. And again, he'll give you a new life. He'll make you into a new creation. He'll make you a co-heir with Christ. There are works for you set out for you to do. The good work he begins in you today, he will bring to completion. God wants to not just save you, but then bring you onto his team. He wants you to work for him. He wants to give you blessings upon blessings, and he wants to to lavish those upon you more than I think we can ever even think about or imagine. He wants to free you from the slavery of sin, he wants to free the bondage from you. He wants to say, Come to me. He doesn't want you to be enslaved by sin, he wants you. So wherever we are this morning, I just want to lead us into a time of prayer. Maybe, again, we've been following Jesus for a long time and we need to repent and say, God, I want to be more like you. And maybe for the first time we need to say, Jesus, take my life. Here it is. I am yours. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are worthy of our delight. So we ask this morning, by the power of your spirit, that we we would be able to Come to a realization that, man, maybe we're, we're living out the worldview of this world. We're saying, this is most meaningful to me, and therefore this is what I find the most pleasure in, so this is therefore what I built my life upon. By the power of your Spirit, God, would you work repentance in us? And would we see the fruit of repentance, which is joy, freedom, peace, your glory shining through us? I believe as we repent, God, we become showcases for your glory. That the world would see there's a different life to live. One surrendered to Christ. And one that will have far more pleasure than one lived for itself. For those of us in the room this morning who maybe don't yet know and love Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to place your faith in him. Again, the faith you are proclaiming is the faith that Jesus died for your sins, that you are a sinner in need of a savior just like me. And then instead of being separated from the holy, perfect God, you want to be united with the holy, perfect God through faith in Christ. And he was enough for you. If that's you this morning, it's not magical words. It's a condition of your heart to say, Jesus, forgive me. I believe in you. I want to give my life to you. If that's you, I want to welcome you to the kingdom of God. I want to welcome you to all the wonderful things that Jesus has for you. Father, we love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.